1: Hi there, and welcome to the show. I am glad you could join me today. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you to the program. I hope I don't scare you off. And I say that only because I do tackle subjects that can make people uncomfortable. And I try not to do this in an Alex Jones way, you know, where I'm screaming at you and, you know, hitting you over the head with a rolled up newspaper. Listen to me, dummy. Listen to me. That's that's not my approach. I do think we have some very serious things going on around us. Today, I'm going to be spending some time talking about the importance of preserving freedom of speech, especially when it comes to voices of dissent. And if that seems a little bit self-serving, I understand. You know, after all, that's kind of what I'm doing here. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm just, you know, trying to, trying to protect my own cow, you know, or my own ox from being gored. But... I think this has application for for all of us, including people who don't host podcasts or radio broadcasts or don't write or, you know, otherwise speak to the public. There's a lot at stake here. And with everything that's been going on, it's kind of easy sometimes to uh, stop seeing the forest for the trees, so to speak. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about uh, a couple of aspects of the war against dissent and how it seems to be picking up speed. And it's crazy. This is one of the things that, that blows me away is big tech has openly come out and, and taken sides. Now, the crazy thing to me is, you know, I look at my life and, and I'm going to sound like an old timer when I say this. But, you know, I remember the days before cell phones. I remember the days before a household computer was a, a thing. I mean, to be quite honest, I remember my family getting our first color TV and thinking that was pretty amazing. And in some, so many ways, big tech has improved our lives. I mean, it has revolutionized how business is done. Any Anybody who's had the big brown truck pull up or FedEx or Amazon or whomever and drop off exactly what you need on your porch within a day or two of ordering, you know, you can attest to this has been amazing. But there's a dark side here that we need to look at, too, and how big tech is using its influence. And I have this terrific article from Thomas L. Knapp. This is a guy who's been covering internet freedom issues for years, and he he takes on the question of why is big tech taking such an open stance against rather than for freedom, and particularly freedom of speech? Well, in his words, he says they're playing Monopoly, and they're going to lose. Thomas Knapp, <clears throat> in an article published on, <clears throat> pardon me, this is published on uh, everythingvoluntary.com says, over the years, I've written many columns concerning the war on internet freedom. And he says, my usual targets are the politicians and government agencies who serve as shock troops for the dark side across fronts ranging from encryption to sex worker advertisements to dark net marketplaces. But he says, on the private side of things or the private sector side of things, I've just noted that anti-freedom business practices are bad business practices, that bad business practices tend to be self-punishing, and that none of the actors in big tech are, strictly speaking, monopolies. But he says now the war has been tuning up into its next phase, and big tech is finally taking an open stand against rather than for freedom. Facebook and Twitter are cracking down on speech, both left and right varieties, Google, Amazon, Apple at all are trying to take down sites and apps on which speech can't be easily regulated. So why is big tech finally showing us an anti-freedom face? Now, Thomas Knapp says, if you have to ask why, the answer is almost always money. And that may certainly be true in this case. Most of the firms in question enjoy substantial revenue from government contracts. So they want to keep their single biggest customer happy, both to preserve those revenue streams and to avoid the imposition of regulations that might cut into their profit margins. But he says at this point, it's also safe to say that they're looking for what he calls regulatory capture. They see the handwriting on the wall. Regulation is coming, whether they like it or not, but they're big players with plenty of lobbying money, so they expect to influence the coming regulation to their own advantage. What does that mean? Well, he says they don't want to be a big fish in a small pond. They want to be the only fish in a big pond. They don't want to beat new competitors on the merits of their product and services. They want to use government regulation to make it impossible for those new competitors to put up any competition at all. So they're not monopolies yet, but they want to be. And they're making their play right now. But he says, unlike previous instances of regulatory capture, such as that of electric power, after a century of government-imposed natural monopolies imposed for the express purpose of benefiting big business, still has us overpaying to keep our lights on. But he says, this one isn't going to work. Short of government simply cutting the Internet off entirely, there's only one way this ends. If the Internet is allowed to survive at all, the would-be monopolies are going to come to grief. Even China's communist regime and its quarter century old great firewall have proven inadequate to the task of separating users from the content and applications they seek. He says the long term result of American big tech allying itself with the state, allying itself with the state to suppress internet freedom, will be its withering as users deserted for offshore hosting and unstoppable peer to peer and distributed applications. So he says, yes, things are bad, they're going to get worse, but the outcome isn't in doubt. Big tech can switch to the user side or it can go extinct. Now that may sound pretty harsh, but I have to say, maybe it's the times that we live in. What once would have sounded very harsh to me actually sounds optimistic. And because I am a believer in the power of the free market and in the innovation that uh, that drives the free market, right? See a need, fill a need. That's what the free market is about. I'm pretty confident he's right. So the reason I bring this up is because I want to encourage uh, I want to encourage you, as well as myself and anybody else who's sitting there on the fence going, I, "I'm not sure what to think about this to commit to the side of freedom. Now this seems like such a simple thing, right? I mean, you, you would think, well, nobody would wait. Well, of course, Brian, <clears throat> how, could there, how could there be any doubt? that we are on the side of freedom. And yet I'm going to ask you this question. Do you find yourself looking around to see who is within earshot before you say something? I think most of us do. And, and you know, sometimes it's a matter of, well, you know, I'm just, you know, I don't want to offend anybody by the opinion that I'm about to offer. And, and you recognize some people might take it as offense. But there's also the fear of, uh, what if I say something that comes back to, to haunt me? You know, what if I say something and someone is like, ah, you know, I got you on camera, right? I recorded you saying something that I can then take to the cancel culture mob and set them loose. We live in a time where the freedom to speak your mind is diminishing. And I don't say that lightly. It's not just, you know, the threat of disapproval from a few ideologues here or there. It's uh, people will come after you and do everything they can to make you unemployable. To harass you and your family, you know, out of your home. I mean, it is, it's intense. And, and I hate to draw comparisons because people, you know, immediately invoke Godwin's law. Oh, yes, you're going to compare us to the Third Reich. Well, I'm not going to suggest that uh, yeah we are we are at the point now where we have our own Gestapo and we have, you know, people who have been relegated to, you know, subhuman status and have to wear a, an emblem on their sleeve to show who they are, their businesses are marked, you know, we're taking them away to the camps. We're not there. But we're moving in the direction that leads to such acts. And we're moving on cat's feet. Well at least we have been up until recently I think I uh, think we we may have uh, switched <laughs> to some combat boots here lately but we're moving in a direction that takes us closer and closer to that kind of authoritarian and eventually totalitarian thinking. And you'll hear people you know get on get on the air uh, Brian Stelter from CNN was talking the other day about how you know it's not really censorship to be limiting how you know people are able to reach an audience it's you're just limiting the reach of a liar. And the premise that few are questioning is, okay, who gets to determine who's a liar and who isn't? In other words, if, if someone is standing in your way and saying, hey, 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 you can't listen to this person or you can't read that article, they are making the decision of what you are able to consider, not you. And I know this kind of sounds like an absolutist point of view, but I think there's truth to this. My old friend Jim Lorenz taught me this years ago. Either you choose what you will see, read, or hear, or someone else does. It's like you're either pregnant or you're not. Either you are making the choices of what content you're accessing, or somebody else is. And if somebody else is making that choice, my friend, that is censorship. And that is not good. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I go any further, let me just take a moment here and give a shout out to my sponsors. They include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio Del Cion Home Lots. I would encourage you, take a moment, go to my show notes at thebryanhideshow.com and if you have need for the services or for the products that, uh, that these sponsors offer, I would urge you, please, please do business with them. Let them know that their message has reached your ear. And, and even if you don't need it right now, just do me this favor and drop them a line or just send them a message or call them up and tell them, I appreciate you sponsoring Brian's show. Because these sponsors make it possible for me to focus as much of my effort as possible on bringing you content that is hopefully um, thought-provoking, hopefully uplifting and empowering and, and strengthens your resolve and puts steel in your backbone to stand up and be counted for those things that really matter. I would appreciate it. They would appreciate knowing that the message has reached you. And again, the contact information, the contact links are right there on my show notes page. All right, let's talk a little bit about how big tech has uh, partnered with the security state. This is one of the biggest mistakes that I believe that they have made. Yes, they've improved our lives in many ways, but this is a form of crony capitalism at work. And in the words of Ivan Eland, it is a grave sin what they're doing. They claim to champion privacy, you know, companies like Google or Amazon, but they make a fortune contracting with the government so what's the downside Ivan Eland says the deplatforming of Donald Trump by Twitter Facebook and Google owned YouTube that is big tech recently garnered big headlines Trump's change in status raised cries among some conservatives of censorship yet a more libertarian view holds that these are private companies that have a right to control their content just as private broadcast and print media do He says the word censorship is traditionally and more appropriately applied to government violations of the Constitution's First Amendment guarantee of speech. More disturbing, though, he says, might be Big Tech's aiding of law enforcement's violations of the rights of individuals at home and contributions to the military's violation of human rights abroad. He says despite its reputation for independence, it has recently been revealed that Big Tech's relationship with the American National Security Establishment, may be stronger than was previously thought. Okay, pause for just a moment. Why would that matter? Why would it matter if there was this partnership or relationship between the national security state and big tech? I just want you to think along with me for a moment. How much have you shared about yourself on Facebook, on Twitter, on on any number of these big tech platforms. But I'm thinking particularly Facebook, since that's probably the one that I'm most familiar with. I mean, a person could go through your Facebook feed and based on the, the things you like, the things you laugh at, the things you register displeasure over, the things you share, the kind of photos that you share about yourself, the little random thoughts that you put down, do you think I could construct a fairly detailed psychological profile of who you are, what you believe in, who you hang out with, where you go? You know, just in case they needed to file that away, you know, for some future reference, I'm just saying. It's kind of a chilling thought. Okay, let me add one more layer of chilling on top of that. What about Facebook? Even when you are not currently on Facebook, even when it's not even open in a browser window, patiently sitting back and and scooping up and recording every bit of information about where you go online. I know people marvel over how many times we were just talking about an ad and boom, or we talked about a product and boom, an ad pops up showing exactly what we were talking about. I've actually heard some people suggest, hey, you're interested in getting a good birthday present, Christmas present, Valentine's present? Just go stand by your significant other's, you know, computer or laptop or smartphone, and state loudly whatever it is that you would like. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, pretty soon they'll be seeing the ads show up in their newsfeed. Oh, that's weird. Oh, I wonder if I should, wonder if I should consider this. So, yeah, there's there's some pretty deep dark stuff that's going on there because of that partnership, and this has been known for a long time. And it's also known that uh, big tech particularly some of the social media platforms and particularly Facebook has experimented with its algorithms into how can it manipulate your emotions your mental well-being depending on what it shows you. Now I don't want you you know to you know recoil in fear or to be paralyzed with terror at the idea that oh, they're on to me they're 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 in my life they're in my head. But I bet for a lot of people, they've just learned something that they didn't know, that, uh, wow, I had no idea that it went that deep, that it went that far. I know that's how I felt. See, at some tech firms, back to the article here, workforce opposition has arisen over company contracts with the military and law enforcement, yet these employee objections have usually led the companies to hide such government business through the use of mundane and nondescript subcontractors. Ivan Eland says Big Tech has had a long-standing relationship with the U.S. government and military. During World War II, the government used IBM's punch card technology to keep track of prisoners at unconstitutional domestic internment camps, housing Japanese Americans, who even government reports admitted posed no threat to the American war effort. By the way, at the same time, Nazi Germany was using similar IBM technology. The Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA, of the Department of Defense, funded research on computing in the 1960s that led to the Internet and later to Siri. Now, such spin-offs are beneficial, but it's more efficient for the private sector to invest in them directly. Less positively, positively, Honeywell Aerospace manufactured fragmentation bombs, which killed many civilians during the Vietnam War. Silicon Valley was no stranger to military contracts with Lockheed, now Lockheed Martin, builder of military aircraft, missiles, satellites, and other defense systems, being the biggest player there during the 1980s. He says nowadays, big tech companies have loads of contracts with the military and law enforcement. Tech Inquiry a nonprofit organization promoting tech accountability, reports that DOD, ICE, FBI, DEA, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons have thousands of contracts with Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Dell, IBM, and Hewlett-Packard. Microsoft is by far the contract champion with 5,000. Amazon and Google trail with 350 and 250, respectively. Now, for example, Amazon's facial recognition software could easily be misused by the government. Yet the company is still marketing it to government agencies such as Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And furthermore, Amazon's cloud services are employed by Palantir, a company that creates databases for ICE. Microsoft even admits that its software allows ICE to utilize deep learning capabilities to accelerate facial recognition and identification of immigrants. Dell also licenses software to ICE. Google was involved in Project Maven to provide artificial intelligence for U.S. drone warfare in foreign nations. American presidents have used drones to illegally kill people, including Barack Obama's assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki in Yemen. Awlaki was an American citizen killed by his own government without charges, a trial, or sentencing. It's been a few years, so we tend to forget. That's not supposed to happen under proper government. (laughs) Almost 4,000 Google employees demanded the company end the contract and some resigned over it. Yet Google is now providing off-the-shelf technology for drones. And big tech is even helping foreign governments conduct what can legitimately be called censorship. For example, Google, in a project called Dragonfly, sold the oppressive Chinese government a censored version of its search engine. Does this surprise you to learn this? Microsoft beat out Amazon for a whopping $10 billion joint enterprise defense infrastructure contract to provide cloud computing for the Department of Defense. All right, there's more to this article. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. I will have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I want to take a moment here to uh, point you towards my friends at uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you're a small business owner, I know you are wearing multiple hats. That is the nature of the beast. And one of those hats that you have to wear is you have to be kind of an insurance expert, right? Because there are types of commercial insurance that are just a part of doing business. Well, if you are one of those people, and I think there are a lot of them out there who say, okay, I'll wear the hat, but I still don't fully understand or feel fully comfortable with everything that I'm doing. I think I know what I've got, but do I really have all my T's crossed, all of my I's dotted? This is where Landmark Risk Management and Insurance can help you. You can contact them by getting to to them through the uh, contact link that I provide in my show notes. That's for February 4th, 2021 at thebryanhideshow.com. They exist. They are a team of insurance specialists and experts who can help you make the most of all the different hats you're wearing, but especially that one that knows that your commercial insurance needs are all covered, that everything is is taken care of so you can have peace of mind and focus on other things important to the running of your business. Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this show. I've been sharing an article here from Ivan Eland, Senior Fellow at the Independent Institute, and it's, a, it's an article about how Big Tech's gravest sin is working with the national security state. I mean, I don't know if you've had any heartburn over what Big Tech has been doing. You know, a lot of people didn't really mind when Big Tech, you know, deplatformed Alex Jones, because maybe you looked at Alex Jones and you thought, yeah, he's a little too extreme. Guy's too much of a spittle flinger. And, and whatever your opinions may be of Alex Jones, um, The prospect of, yeah, this guy needs to be silenced. And just because it isn't a government hand that's being slapped over his mouth and preventing him from from speaking or reaching his his audience doesn't make it any less of an act of censorship, even if it's happening at the hands of, you know, a private business, especially when you consider some of the partnerships and, you know, some of the, the common goals, if you will, that uh, big tech appears to have with certain people in, in government, particularly in the, the national security apparatus. I hope that doesn't sound too much like it's a conspiracy. It's a big conspiracy and they're all out to get us, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's, it's distasteful that uh, using crony capitalism, big tech can do the bidding of big government which we really would like to silence people like Alex Jones and a lot of other people who are nothing like Alex Jones, but nonetheless are committed to speaking the truth, especially truths that are inconvenient or that uh, that expose official wrongdoing or even questionable activities. Back to Ivan Eland's article, he says big tech should be leery of working with both the U.S. and foreign governments. And not only because many of their employees object to contracts that can result in deaths or the violation of human rights. There's also the consideration that government money never comes without strings attached. Contracting with the government will bring a slew of regulations that can change the commercial nature of any business, rendering it less creative and innovative. Nonetheless, he says, this admonition may fall on deaf ears because the government is so big and spends so much money in the private sector that it's hard for tech companies to avoid being tempted by its pot of gold. And although it pretends differently, big tech has a long and lucrative relationship with government contracting. And unfortunately, that business will probably continue to grow in the future. Not exactly good news, right? It's, uh, it's... A little spooky, though, to see it playing out in front of us. And, look, that's a part of it that, that really seems removed from you and me, right? Well, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about this. This is all being used, you know, in some faraway you know, country. You know, it's going after Al-Qaeda. It's going after ISIS. It's going after these uh, ne'er-do-wells on the other side of the world. Not so fast. Not so fast. I mean, you recognize right now here at home you have a war on dissent that is picking up speed under the uh, protection of a domestic terrorism law, or at least a proposed domestic terrorism law. Philip Giraldi, executive director of the Council for for the National Interest, has an excellent article. And he just comes right out and says, look, what makes the current uh, state of war against terrorism, whether it's abroad or at home, as some are suggesting, What makes that so dangerous is that the national security apparatus has been politicized. Here's how he puts it. He says, President Joe Biden has already made it clear that legislation will be used to combat what he refers to as domestic terrorism. And that it's going to be a top priority for his uh, his administration. That means his inaugural speech pledge to be the president for all Americans appears to apply except for those who don't agree with him. Former Barack Obama CIA Chief John Brennan, who is clearly in the loop on developments, puts it this way in a tweet in where he describes how the new administration's spooks are moving in laser-like fashion to try to uncover as much as they can about the insurgency that includes religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, racists, nativists, and even libertarians. Now, Philip Giraldi says, look, the United States Constitution's Bill of Rights, which includes freedom of speech and association, has been under siege for some time now. Government has always used its assumed powers confirmed by a claimed state of emergency to deprive citizens of their rights during the American Civil War. Abraham Lincoln imprisoned critics of the conflict. Woodrow Wilson's First World War administration brought in the Espionage Act, which has since been used to convict whistleblowers without having to present the level of evidence that would be required in a normal civil trial. During the Second World War, Franklin D. Roosevelt erected concentration camps that imprisoned many Japanese Americans, whose only crime consisted of being Japanese. But he says perhaps the greatest attack on the Bill of Rights is more recent, the Patriot and Military Commissions Act that were passed into law as a consequence of the global war on terror launched by President George W. Bush in the wake of 9-11. Together with the Secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, which includes a court designed to speed up the warrant approval process, ordinary citizens found themselves on the receiving end of surveillance for which there was little or no justification in terms of probable cause. The visa process was notoriously abused in the national security apparatus' attempt to derail the campaign of Donald Trump. He says the tools are in place for ever more government mischief and no one should doubt that the Democrats are just as capable of ignoring constitutional safeguards as the Republicans have been. What makes the current state of war against terrorism so dangerous is that the national security apparatus has been politicized while the government has learned that labeling someone or some entity, terrorist or even material supporter of terrorism, is infinitely elastic. That's precisely why Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has frequently called out opponents and attached to them the terrorist label, since it then permits other steps that might otherwise be challenged. Then there's the fact that the playing field has changed since the First and Second World Wars. The government, he says, has technical capabilities that were never dreamed of in most of the 20th century. Edward Snowden and other whistleblowers have demonstrated how the government routinely ignores constitutional limits on its ability to interfere in the lives of ordinary citizens. Not only that, it can monitor the lives of millions of Americans simultaneously giving the police and intelligence agencies the power to mount fishing expeditions that literally invade the phones, computers, and conversations of people who have not been guilty of any crime. He says the authorizations that already exist will be further weaponized to go after dissidents as identified by the new regime. A bill introduced by House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff would take existing war-on-terror legislation and simply amend it to say we can now do that within the U.S. It would be combined with previous legislation, including former former President Barack Obama's infamous 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, which allows the military to indefinitely detain American citizens suspected of terrorism without a trial. Obama and Brennan also assumed an illegal and unconstitutional right to act as judge, jury, and executioner by drone of American citizens overseas. Given those precedents, a bill like Schiff's would, f- would free the national security community's hands even more. He says the new body of legislation would mean increased secret legal surveillance, suppression of free speech, indefinite car- incarceration without charges, somebody just disappearing, torture, perhaps even assassination. And he says if that sounds totalitarian, it should And there ought to be particular concern that the plan of the Biden administration uh, to go after so-called domestic terrorists will be this generation's version of either Pearl Harbor or 9-11. This is the danger that I think so many of us have been warning about for, for years. Don't give someone the tools to create a framework of tyranny. Eventually, somebody's going to come along, and it's going to be just like a turnkey operation. Oh, well, I got the key. Let's, let's take it and run with it. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Again, I have a link to it on the show notes page, which you can find at the Brian Hyde show.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article here from Philip Giraldi. Domestic terrorism and the law, domestic terrorism law plus the war on dissent will proceed full speed ahead. This is not good news, and so I, I apologize if I've upset your tummy, you know, if, I've, if I'm giving you indigestion by sharing this with you. Uh, my goal is not to make you fearful. It's not to make you angry. It's just to to put into perspective what we are facing right now. And the warning that uh, Philip Giraldi is, is sounding here is that, look, you have an administration right now that is saying we are going to uh, pursue a war on domestic terrorism. And specifically, they're looking at <clears throat> the incident that took place at the Capitol building on January 6th. I, I am going to start just calling it the clash at the Capitol. It's already being referred to 1-6 in some circles, and it's been exaggerated beyond all recognition. Now it's regularly referred to as the insurrection, which it was not. Even though it's referred to this by both politicians and mainstream media, the language used to vilify what are alleged to be right-wing and white supremacist enemies of the state is astonishing, and the technology is keeping pace to turn the United States and other countries into police states to ensure that citizens will do the bidding of government. Now, Philip Giraldi says to cite just one example of how technology can drive the process, Biden has several times threatened to initiate and enforce something like a nationwide lockdown to defeat the coronavirus. Can he do it? Well, the tools are already in place. Facial recognition technology is highly developed and deployable in the numerous surveillance cameras that are being installed. Wristbands are being developed overseas, that are designed to compel compliance with government dictates on pandemic measures enforcement. If you have been told to stay home and are instead walking the dog, your wristband will tell the police and they will find and arrest you. Yeah, wouldn't it be easier if we just had a chip or something we could put under the skin? I'm just, just saying. <laughs> I know people have been warning about that for years. And Giraldi says, as the old saying goes, the revolution is already beginning to devour its own children. Universities and schools are insisting teachers actively support both publicly and privately the new equity land diversity, equity and diversity rather, order. While police departments are purging themselves of officers suspected of being associated with conservative groups, meaning that something like a loyalty test might soon become common. Recently, the Defense Department has begun intensive monitoring of the social media of military personnel to identify dissenters, as is already done in some large companies with their employees. The new Director of National Intelligence, hardliner Avril Haines, has already confirmed her agency will participate in a public threat assessment of QAnon, which she has described as America's greatest threat. Now, Haynes has also suggested that intelligence agencies will look at connections between folks in the U.S. and externally and foreign, while Biden, on his first day in office, actually pledged to thoroughly investigate claims about Russian hacking of U.S. infrastructure and government sites, the poisoning of Putin critic Alexei Navalny, and the story that Russia offered the Taliban bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. It would be Russiagate all over again with a claimed foreign threat being used to conceal civil rights violations being committed by the federal government at home. And, of course, the new policies will reflect the new, the biases of the new rulers. Right-wing terror will be targeted, even though the list of actual right-wing-driven outrages is embarrassingly short. Groups like Black Lives Matter will be untouchable in spite of their major role in last year's rioting, arson, looting, and violence that caused $2 billion damage and killed as many as 30 because they are all... They are in all but name part of the Democratic Party. Antifa, which rioted in Portland last week, will also get a pass. The media routinely describes leftist violence as mainly peaceful and sometimes only sometimes will concede that some property damage occurred. He says it's Trump supporters and conservatives in general who are being shown the exit door to include calls for deprogramming them. The Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin recently declared that we have to collectively, in essence, burn down the Republican Party. We have to level them because if there are survivors, if there are people who weather this storm, they will do it again. She also echoed calls for making them unemployable. I think it's absolutely abhorrent that any institution of higher learning, any news organization or any entertainment organization that has a news outlet would hire these people. As the notably clueless Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice said in 2006, while Lebanon was getting bombed and shelled by Israel, we are seeing the birth pangs of a new Middle East. And Philip Giraldi says, so too are we Americans seeing something new and strange emerging from the ruins of Trumpdom. It will not be pretty. And he says, after it's over, Americans will enjoy a lot fewer liberties. That's for sure. Okay, He's a little more pessimistic, but I also think he's looking at this pretty square and and calling it as he sees it. So what do we do? What kind of onus does this put on you and me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Or if you didn't ask, I'm glad that you let me ask it for you. (laughs) Pull up a chair. What we need are people who are willing to comprehend, live, and speak the truth regardless of what it may cost them. And this is not new, okay? This is not, you know, uncharted territory. Nobody's ever been there before. No, it's happened many times throughout history. One of my favorite examples of uh, truly heroic standing for truth is the White Rose Society and Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Society, I don't remember when I first heard the story about them, but it was a story that grabbed my attention and held on. In a nutshell, during World War II, you had a group of college students in Germany who secretly printed and distributed pamphlets urging their fellow countrymen to withdraw their support of Hitler and his Third Reich. And this wasn't just kids acting on youthful impulse. They were committed to speaking truth that very few people dared to acknowledge during a time of total war when there was nothing resembling free speech in Germany. If you were merely suspected of disloyalty to the Nazi regime, you could expect to be arrested, interrogated, and tortured at the hands of the Gestapo. And to openly oppose the bloody wars and the totalitarian mindset that ruled their government, that was considered high treason, meaning it was punishable by death. So Sophie and her brother and a handful of friends were captured by the authorities after they left pamphlets at the University of Munich in February of 1943. And they were given a show trial, publicly denounced. They were executed as traitors within a matter of days. Now they were, you know, very poorly thought of at that time at least by those in charge. Today, the truth has emerged from the darkness and members of the White Rose are rightly celebrated as examples of the finest German citizens of their time. They are recognized as individuals whose love of truth, freedom, and justice was stronger than their desire to save their own skins. I'm going to link to an article that I I wrote, uh, I guess about a year ago, about uh, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. It's an award-winning film. I think it was made back in 2005. The dialogue in the film is entirely in German with English subtitles. What makes this such a remarkable story is that it's not just based on true events, but the dialogue that you hear in this movie was taken directly from the impeccable interrogation records kept by the Nazis. And there's a powerful scene, about 10 minutes long, where... Sophie Scholl is being interrogated by Gestapo inspector Robert Moore. And she reminds him, you know, that, uh, you know, he 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 tells her, look, it's a good thing you were using peaceful means, but you're still going to have to be published because it's the law and without the law, there would be no order. She reminds him that, well, prior to you guys into the Nazis coming to power, our laws protected free speech, but now those who speak out are subject to imprisonment or death. And she asks him, is that order? Moore responds by saying, well, what can we rely on if not the law, no matter who wrote it? You know what her answer was? You can rely on your conscience. Now, Moore dismisses her answer as nonsense. He says, look, I'm a criminologist. My job's to examine the law and the people and to root out the rotten spots. And then Sophie points out to him, well, laws change, but conscience doesn't. And she reminds Moore that current laws don't protect everyone from arbitrary acts of government. They only protect the yes-men. Naturally, that doesn't go over very well with her interrogator. He talks about how, look, you know, you're abusing the privileges and the blessings that our government has given you. And he says, you know, I've, I've been helped by our government. I was once just a tailor. Now I hold authority as a policeman. It's interesting, too. She, he asks her, why would you risk so much for false ideas? I think this is a question that some of us are likely to face in the days ahead. Her answer was, because of my conscience, and she gives him concrete examples of official mistreatment of a Jewish neighbor, the euthanizing of mentally challenged children, which her conscience could not ignore. I only share this with you because the exchange that you see play out in this film, which is, again, based on a real experience, it's remarkable, and it's true, and it's an example of how summoning the courage to speak moral truth to entrenched evil can become a life-or-death matter. It also demonstrates that, uh, you know, anybody who's interested in speaking truth like that has to be well acquainted with his or her conscience. So, we don't need more violent true believers. What we need right now and moving ahead is more people who will speak the truth, as Sophie Scholl did, without regard as to what it may cost them.